Now, perhaps some of us, as I shared that verse from Luke 2, that with man, things are impossible, but with God, there is nothing that is impossible. Some of you, maybe through what you're going through right now in your life, you wondered, is that really true? Can I really trust God for my circumstance that I'm facing today? Can he take care of it? I want to tell you right now that with you, it may be impossible, but with our God, there is nothing that is impossible. I hope that as I go through the message that God's laid in my heart to share with you, that the truths we're going to discover today, it's going to be more of a teaching. But what I want to do is, with these truths, I am praying God would paint a picture for us. And that picture is a picture of you in Christ. And I, my prayer has been, God, let us be enamored, not with ourselves, but with this thing, and I'm going to call it this, the glory of God. I pray that we will be enamored this morning with the glory of God and that it will stir something up within us that as we're facing this difficulty, wondering, is all, are all things really possible with God? That a faith will rise in our heart, just like in Caleb's heart, Right? And he spoke with authority that something will happen in our heart as we are mesmerized by this truth of God's glory that we will respond with that type of faith. And we will move forward and we will see God do the impossible. Amen? Well, we've been talking, of course, about pictures in the old covenant of the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, and now the promised land and how they are pictures of the redemption of Christ in the new covenant of our salvation. Now, we learned something that redemption is not just something from our past. Redemption just doesn't mean purchasing us to be his own as if it is a done deal, but rather it is a continuing process. Redemption is past if you're a believer in Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross secured that for us, but redemption is present. See, God redeemed our life, is redeeming our life from the pit. This happens every day. Some of you, you're about to experience that deliverance, I believe. But redemption is also a future thing. And we talked a bit about that last week, but we're going to talk a little bit uh, about it this morning. But I want us to see redemption as this process, not just something from your past. It's present and it is also future. Well, let's look at Exodus 15. This is the song that Miriam, that Moses, that the Israelites sang once God had parted the sea and they had crossed it. All right. At the end of this song, the very last two verses in my Bible, it's verses 17 and 18. The song concludes with this. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Can you hear that? God is going to reign forever and ever. This holy mountain would be Mount Zion or Jerusalem in the promised land. But we learned last week that, Jer that the past Jerusalem or the, the, the present physical city of Jerusalem represents the giving of the law 
but that there is a heavenly Jerusalem in which we have our citizenship and we are now in his kingdom as ambassadors, reaching and extending that kingdom here on earth. Understand then (coughs) that this holy mountain of God is the kingdom of God. It is not just a physical location, it is a kingdom. You might remember in Daniel 2, and in that particular scene where Daniel is interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he pictures a statue, and in that statue, I'm not going to describe it, but it says that there was a rock carved out of a mountain. The rock came and crashed, destroyed the statue, And it says that that rock became a huge mountain filling the earth. And we later discovered in that very same chapter that this huge mountain is nothing other than the kingdom of God. It will extend from sea to sea, Scripture says. And so in in Isaiah chapter 2, it talks about all nations streaming to God's holy mountain, not a physical location, but into the kingdom of God. Now, What I want us to see then is that we presently are in this kingdom and God is doing something absolutely amazing and he is preparing us for that kingdom in the future. So (coughs) what I want you to do, excuse me, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're actually going to be spending quite a bit of time in Romans 8. In Romans 8.23, I want us to look at a phrase here. Paul is, uh, his letters are filled with these concepts of the kingdom of God. Now, last week, we spent a little bit of time about Mount Sinai and how Mount Sinai prepared them with principles of the old covenant to prepare them to live in the promised land. And even so, God's word gives us principles, not at Mount Sinai, but he gives us principles that we would be able to live in the present kingdom of God and eventually in the eternal kingdom in heaven. Now, this passage here speaks of that time. It says, I need to back up here a bit. Romans 8, 23 says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now understand in verse 10, he says, your body is dead because of sin, but there will, no, not physically dead. There is a death sentence upon it. We are mortal. Scripture says we will, that which is mortal will become immortal. And this is what Paul is referring to, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies is something then that lies ahead. It's in the future. But I want us to see that the redemption of our bodies, though that is the end, there is a process that God is doing in us. Now, now I want you to, to, to look at verse 30. Now, in verse 30, something is, is, is laid out for us. It's actually a series in 29 and 30 of five verbs. Those whom God knew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those he justified, he 
glorified. Now, I don't want to make a big deal about this, but I want us to know, know something here. That many people, when they come to this phrase, are glorified, understand it strictly in the sense of a future event. That is the redemption of their bodies. Now, I'm not going to disagree that it includes that. I believe it does. But I want us today, I want us to see this concept of us being glorified far more than just what many people call the, our glorification. Our glorification is not just future, but it is present. Now, those who see it as future would say the reason why it is in the past tense here are glorified, those whom he justified, he glorified, is because in the mind and sovereignty of God, it is absolutely certain. I'm not going to disagree with this, but understand that if that's the case, it is the only place in the entire New Testament where Paul gives a promise of God, a future promise of God, and he puts it in the past tense. I'm going to suggest to you that the reason why it's in the past tense is because it's not just future. It's something that is happening now, and it has already been happening in your life. So here's what I'm going to do. Go ahead and turn to verse 17. Glorified is used several times in the New Testament. The Greek word that we translate glorified is used many times in the New Testament. Only here does it carry the sense. Usually glorify means to praise and to bring glory to and honor. Only here is it something that happens to us and carries a vastly different meaning. So what do we, how do we understand this? There's a related word that I think is going to help us out so much. It's not the word glorified. It's actually a compound word, meaning to be glorified with. We actually find that word right there in verse 17. So I'm going to read that to you. And I want us to unwrap this concept of glory. And I believe that when we do, we're going to see something absolutely amazing. Are you ready? Verse 17 of chapter 8 says this. It's, he's been speaking about us being heirs and co-heirs with Christ. This amazing inheritance that as followers of Jesus we possess, that's been given to us because we've been adopted and our future uh, full adoption taking place in the future. But right now, we are children of God. We have been given an inheritance that we can walk in. Verse 17. Now, if we are children and we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So, we have this concept of suffering with Christ in his sufferings and now experiencing his glory. So here's, I, want, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, when did Jesus suffer? Because that suffering is something that we participate in. And then when was Jesus glorified? Because we will, ex we will participate in that glorification. That is what this verse is saying. So the first question, when did Jesus suffer? Well, I would venture to say that he came unto his own and his own received him not. And so really throughout his life, and especially when he began his ministry, he suffered. But I think we would all agree that ultimately, the ultimate suffering was on the cross. Okay? Be because it was on the cross that the Father took yours and my sins 
even mine, as numerous as they are, placed them on his son Jesus, and there Jesus suffered for my sins. I have no comprehension of what that is like. God manifested in the flesh, never experiencing sin, much less the guilt of sin. And, you know, for me, I experience sin and its guilt, but it's just generally, generally one at a time. If I experienced all of my sins in my lifetime all at once and all of the guilt, I'd explode. I, 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 I'd I don't know what would happen. It's beyond my understanding. Jesus didn't just do that on the cross for me, but for you as well. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot. Not just because you sin so much more than me, but because of our sin, right? Of our sin on his son, Jesus. And scripture says that when, this, when they wanted to make sure Jesus was dead, the centurion, he knew it, but to be assured, he took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side, and he was already dead. We know this because both blood and water, signs of death, came out of the wound. The other criminals needed to have their legs broken. I won't get into why that's the case, but they were still alive, not Jesus. And it wasn't because Jesus was some weak-framed man. He most certainly was not. Again, I have no clue the true suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. Can't touch it. My mind can't go that far. But Jesus suffered on the cross. Now, when I'm talking about participating in Jesus' suffering, you know, it's really easy for us to think that suffering, it means that at work, when I share the gospel, people make fun of me. They persecute me. They talk about me behind my back because I'm a Christian. I'm not going to disagree with that, but understand that our suffering is more than this. See, suffering is the very fact that when I asked Jesus to change my life and I repented and believed, surrendered to him, I was now called to a different life. The old me is dead and now there's a new me that he created and is continuing to create in me. That's what I'm called to. Which means if this is the new me, then anything that resembles the old me, God says, have nothing to do with that. So constantly, the sins of this world, the system of this world, the world itself and all of the temptations bombard me, bombard you. And every moment you are making a choice, I will follow Jesus. I will not follow that old me, that old style, that old lifestyle. That's dead on the battlefield, right? That is suffering. I am making a choice, no, and that's hard. There's something in my flesh that is being appealed to, and I must die to that, and I must yield to the prompting of the Spirit now to follow after Jesus. Our sufferings include that, daily dying to self as well. So I don't want you to think that in participating in Jesus' sufferings, it is simply being persecuted for him but it is the daily dying to self and saying no to those yearnings of the flesh and yes to the yearnings of the Spirit of God in us. All right? <coughs> but let me also say this, 
that that does not mean that what Christ is working in us, that our focus should be that it, it, it only happens through suffering, that following Jesus equals suffering and suffering only, because it does not. There's so much joy in following Jesus. Let me just give you a quick illustration here, very quick, looking at the time. As a man, oh goodness, I love steak. My confession this morning, I love steak. Oh, of course, medium rare. That's the way it's got to be done. Plenty of salt, to be honest with you. My doctor doesn't like that. But I, uh, a good porterhouse, you know, maybe New York strip, mm, okay. You tell me that that's what you're serving, I'm there at your house, okay? And my wife, she'll prepare this amazing meal, and I'll look forward to it. But as I'm thinking about and dreaming about this meal, right, we're in the family room, and we're just chatting and laughing and enjoying each other, and a bowl full of candy is now served on the coffee table. I have to make a decision. I am so hungry. And okay, we're going to throw in a bowl of your favorite chips and my favorite chips on the coffee table as well. I can make a choice. I can, wow, well, I am so hungry. And I have to admit, in view of that steak dinner that's waiting me, I can still be tempted by that. All right. Zach may be throwing a bit of Mountain Dew, right? And then, so I can be tempted by this, and my flesh wants to reach into the candy and reach into the chips and start eating, but you know what? I learned this when I was little, because my mama told me, right, that if I do that, I will lose my appetite. And sure enough, when I have filled my belly with the candy and the potato chips, when I sit down to this meal, I don't eat all of it. Oh, I am so disappointed. And you, I'm going to just tell you this. That when you fill your spirit with just the stuff of the world, you will always lose your appetite for God. You will stop hungering for him, okay? Now, I want you to know, though, that following Jesus means saying no to that candy and the potato chips and maybe some ice cream or, I don't know, brownies, whatever it is that tempts you, and saying yes to this meal. So following Jesus is sitting at the table of this amazing steak dinner, medium rare, of course. And so and I, will, I, will, I will eat all of it. I don't care if it's a 20-ounce or I will eat it. I've heard some people, you know, trying to eat a 54-ounce or whatever. God bless you. I, I don't think I could do that. But I, I could down a 20-ouncer. Oh, yeah. Medium rare. Plenty of salt. You bet. That is following Jesus. But I regularly have to say no to the chips, the soda, the candy, because I want that hunger in following Jesus. So you, you see what I'm saying? This, this suffering isn't just persecution, but it is saying no for something that truly is so much better. So I don't want to leave out. We are sitting at a banquet church following Jesus, but we regularly are presented with the temptations of the world. That's suffering. Now, here's my other question. <clears throat> when was Jesus glorified? Now, think about that. Now, most people, and maybe this is you, Jesus was glorified when he was resurrected. 
After all, that's when he received his glorious body. Roman, <coughs> excuse me, Philippians 3.1 says that one day we will receive a body just like his glorious body. Jesus was physically raised from the dead, received a resurrection, resurrected glorious body, and one day we will too. So many people will respond, when was Jesus glorified? He was glorified at his resurrection. Can I ask you, though, is that what Jesus said? Is that what the Bible tells us? Now, this might surprise you. So I'm just going to encourage you. I kind of got ahead of myself in my notes here, so I'm, I'm kind of piecing this together. Um, wow, it is here somewhere. Here we go. John 12, 23 and 24. Turn there if you would. John 12, 23 and 24. Jesus, his own words, he says this. John 12, 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here we go. He's about to tell us when he's going to be glorified. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, there's other verses like this in the Gospel of John. When was Jesus glorified? I'm going to tell you right now. Jesus was glorified at the cross. Not going to deny he wasn't glorified in his resurrection body and as he was ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, but it started with the cross. So I'm going to help. I want, I want us to see that when we are, when Jesus was glorified, it's not that there was an ah. Oh, don't ask me to do that again. There, there is not some angel singing in heaven that everybody could hear. Though actually, in this chapter, there is a voice from heaven. I didn't read that to you, but at the cross. There was no bright shining light. Actually, there was darkness. There were no angels singing so that every and harps playing so that everybody looked up and said, Oh my goodness, what a glorious event this is. The Son of God died, people wept, and it was dark. At this time, Jesus was glorified. Meaning, he had finally accomplished and fulfilled the Father's will. On the cross, he, at the, with one of his very last words, before it said, into your hands I commit my spirit, he said, it is finished. It's completed. Meaning that the very purpose for the Son of God to come to pay for our sins and become the Savior of the world had finally been accomplished. The sins of the world had been placed upon him. The, 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 the wrath of God had been poured out upon him in sufficiency to pay for your sins. It is finished. Jesus thereby was glorified by fulfilling and accomplishing the will of the Father. Now, do you see this? This now leads us to this very next question. When are you going to be glorified? You see, it's not just when you're resurrected. It is in the very midst of your suffering. God, 
I'm sure that was an amen. (laughs) God is producing something in us that Scripture says is his glory. God is producing his glory in us. We actually encounter it. Look at the very next verse. He begins in, in, go back to, uh, to Romans chapter 8 there. I need to do that as well. He says this, I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Some translations say revealed to us. Interesting note. This word revealed is used several times in the scripture. The the noun is apocalypsis. You probably know what what, what word that is in English, apocalypse. But it means basically final revelation of all things. This verb to reveal always, and there's no exception to this in the New Testament, always talks about the uncovering or unveiling of something that's already there. Do you see that? So when we have gone through these present sufferings, God is doing something in us, and at the end of the age, the veil is pulled off, and the glory of God in us will be revealed. It will become, it will no longer be hidden, but you will see it. Here is our problem. Today, that means you can't see it. You can't see this glory of God that is being produced in you through these sufferings. You can't see it. Now, follow me. I'm running out of time here, and there's really so much that could be said here, so I'm going to kind of give it to you in a nutshell form. I want you now to turn to 2 Corinthians. (coughs) Excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Maybe you've never seen this before. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells them, he says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect what? What do we all reflect, church? The Lord's, don't don't be shy, the Lord's glory. Maybe you're reading from a different translation. It words it differently, so you're kind of lost. Sorry. We all, unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you know what this word glory means? Now, if you were a Jew, you would probably, in your synagogue or in your Messianic church, would use this word somewhat regularly. This word glory in the Hebrew is kabod. You may be familiar with the name eh, Kabod or Ichabod, meaning no glory. This word, <coughs> excuse me, this word kabod, glory, literally means, write this down, it literally means weight or weightiness. I, I'm sorry, I have to, as an American, as a Westerner, I have to pause. How or why do they choose a word that means weight or weightiness to describe God's glory of all things? Weight or weightiness? Now, do you remember Moses standing on Mount Sinai? He is longing to see what? God's glory. 
show me your glory. And so God recognizes, dude, if I were to show you my glory, you would be dead like that. As a sinful man, gone. Life snuffed out of you. No more. No man can see God and live. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm paraphrasing, of course. You probably follow that. I'm going to put my hand, I'm going to tuck you in a crevice of the mountain. I'm going to put my hand over it, and then I'm going to pass by, and all you're going to see, Moses, is my backside. Yeah, well, Lord, uh, that really wasn't what I was looking for, you know? But Moses, this is all that you can stand, is my backside, is, if you will, the, my veiled glory. You cannot, with your own human eyes, behold my full glory and live. You only get to see the backside. So powerful was this veiled glory of God that Moses saw. Remember when he came down from the mountainside, he had to put a veil over his face because, which is what this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 actually says beforehand, because of the glory there. It would freak him out. And plus, God didn't want to see that glory that would eventually fade because Moses was human and that glory indeed would fade and he didn't want the people to see that. So here this is the glory of God. It's radiating, excuse me, I've never been in the presence of God for any extended period of time and I came out and glowed, but Moses did. That is how the veiled glory of God impacted him. We can see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane And the people who want to arrest him come to him, and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, do you remember what Jesus says? He says in the Greek, ego, a me, which literally translated means I, I am, which is like saying either yo estoy or yo soy. I can never remember in Spanish. It's I, I am. Now, in all fairness, you can translate that I am. I am he. And some of your translations do that, but the word he is in italics, meaning they had to supply it. But what was Jesus really saying here? If you, this is in John, and throughout John, you see one of these things that, that John does in which he says, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. On and on and on. I am, I am, I am. Where do you think he gets that? Hmm, let me think. He gets it from Exodus 3 in which Moses is standing before this burning bush and God is revealing himself. You want me to go, talk to Pharaoh, have your people released, but who shall I say to my people that sent me? Who shall I, what what should I tell them? And Jesus says, tell them the I am sent you. And so when Jesus is being questioned, and, and saying, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, his response, ego a me, is a declaration, is a partial unveiling of this already veiled glory of God who has been veiled in human flesh. And he unveils that just a little bit, like seeing the back of God as he passes by. What did the men do? It says they, they fell to the ground. Like dominoes, I added that part, like dominoes. But they all fell to the ground. What did the lead guy back up? There's not enough room, trips over a root and falls to the ground and boom, 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 boom. They all fall down? Well, of course not. They fall down because of the manifestation of the glory of God. The weight or the weightiness of God. 
his perfections, his holiness. In Luke 5, Peter, a sinful man, has Jesus do a miracle. Remember, he fills two boats with fish, though they've been fishing all night. And it manifests the glory of God. So how does Peter respond to Jesus who's in the boat? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You can see what I'm doing right now. It's almost as if, no, this manifestation of the perfections of God's love, of his mercy, his kindness, his holiness is overwhelming to Peter. It's like a weight pressed upon him. It is the excellencies of all of God's character beginning to be manifested. So why am I talking about God's glory and his weightiness, if you will? Because church, this is what God is producing in you. We are being transformed with ever-increasing glory. At the end of the age, the veil will be revealed and the glory that God has been producing in you will become visible. You'll finally see it. Our problem is that we cannot see it or very little of it right now. Several years ago, we had a privilege of visiting Italy. As we walked, as we were in Rome and walked through the Vatican, and I can't remember all of the details, okay? I'm getting too old to do that. But I do remember walking through a hallway. Kids, mom, correct me if I'm mistaken here. But they had tapestries in this hallway along the wall. Do you know what a tapestry is? It's, it's, a, it's not a painting, though I tell you what, it certainly looks as detailed as a painting. So intricate with detail. And on these tapestries that are like, kind of like woven rugs, that's the best way I can describe them, but used as wall hangings. They were huge. I'm not more than six feet, okay? They were probably 20 feet, I'm guessing, 20 feet wide. Just huge murals done by a weaver and a weaver's rod. In and out. Beautiful, colorful, intricate, detailed. But I tell you what, if you were to remove that tapestry from the wall and look at the underside, you would say, oh my goodness, that is so ugly. Here is your problem. God is weaving something in your life and you will only have the privilege of seeing the top side then. Right now, you're just seeing the underside. All of this glory, all of this that God is producing in you, the manifestation of his glory, the perfections of God, and I want you to see it. It is with gold and silver and precious stones, if I can even word it that way, that he is weaving in your life. It's not just some common thread. It is absolutely beautiful and beyond value to us and to God. Because it is the glory of God being woven into your life. How do we sing it uh, earlier today? Eternity weaved into the fabric of my soul. Oh, 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 oh. right. <laughs> the, the, the glory of God being woven into the fabric of your life and all you're seeing are the sufferings and the glories, and yes, the moments in which there's no twisted knots, and well, I, that little bit right, I like that. But wow, this is a hideous picture. 
And honestly, when I look at my life, I can get a bit discouraged. But here's what I'm going to tell you. There's going to come a day in which you will stand before God and he will reveal, uncover all of this glory that he has been weaving into the fabric of your soul. Now look at this. Turn, turn, turn back one page. Uh, excuse me, no, turn ahead one page. I'm sorry. Chapter four, I'm going to conclude with this. I promise. I'm, I'm already preaching long enough today. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles... Do you see that? 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let me read to you the literal translation of this. Our present light afflictions or sufferings is working for us, is working presently for us an eternal weight of glory in utter abundance. Do you see that the eternal weight of the weightiness of God? The word that I'm supplying here, in utter abundance, is this word hyperbole. We get the word hyperbole. A hyperbole, you know what a hyperbole is, right? It's an exaggeration. It literally in the Greek means excess or excessiveness. And the way it's worded is it's excessiveness unto excessiveness. Okay, we could have been okay with just one of those, Paul, but he wants to be excessive, and literally it means excessively excessive. That's really what it translates, excessively. So in utter abundance, beyond your imagination, God is doing something in you. He is producing this eternal weight of weightiness, the manifestation of the very character and nature of God in you. He's using these sufferings to produce this. And one day, you're going to look back and you're going to say, oh, Lord, why did I push away the weaver's rod in my life at this point and this point and this point? Why did I, as God's artwork, as he, different illustrations, he is painting with beautiful colors and brushstrokes and just creating this amazing masterpiece. Why did the painting choose to fall off the easel? Why did the pot on the potter's wheel look up and say to the potter, what are you doing? Honest, have we not asked that question? We may not have been quite so poetic, at least I, I'm not. You know, I, I would, Potter, what are you doing? I don't like what, you're, what I'm seeing here. No, I would just say, God, I don't get it. Just like Dr. Nolan said, I know God has a plan. I just wish that he would show me it. Well, many times he doesn't do that. He doesn't show you the plan. He doesn't show you the top side. He doesn't show you all of the beauty that he's creating. So here's what I want. I'm going to end with this. I want you to be enamored with the glory of God and its beauty and its richness. Because what he is producing in you, it can't compare. What does Paul say? To your what? To your light and momentary afflictions. Paul, how demeaning. Do you not understand what I have gone through in my life? 
and you're calling them light and momentary in view of the sufferings of Christ on the cross and what God suffered for you, yes. I I cannot imagine the intensity of that suffering. So are your afflictions truly in comparison to the cross, light and momentary, they are. They are, but they are producing something of eternal glory. I want you to be enamored by that. I, I, I want you, because that is what scripture paints for us. I am being, I have been glorified since I was converted. He's doing this. He's conforming me. Context of Romans 8, by the way. Conforming me to the image of his son. And he has not just justified me. He has now glorified me. He's continuing to glorify me. And one day at the redemption of my body, he will reveal all of that glory. And I will simply be able to step back and say no more than wow. And be overwhelmed by what God did in my life but I'm going to leave you with this. Please be willing to stand in this grace. I didn't have time to look at Romans 5, but it speaks of this. Allow God to work in you. Stand in this grace and let the weaver use the weaver's rod to weave this amazing picture that will include suffering but also joy, but suffering, but also joy, but also suffering. Allow him to do this. Don't stay the weaver's rod. Let him do this in you. It's light. It's momentary, but it achieves an eternal glory that is absolutely marvelous. Can you stand with me? Could we have the lights? God, your word is beautiful because your truth is beautiful. And if we could confess to you right now, these light and momentary troubles do not feel like that at all. They are hard. They can tend to rob us of our joy because we allow them to. But you have something so much better in store for us. As we submit to your hand, you are the master craftsman, the master weaver, artist, potter, creating something in me. For we are God's workmanship, his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. That's your truth, God. But it's hard for us sometimes, Lord. We can't see the top side of that tapestry and we look at it and we just think of how ugly it is and we feel like utter failures before you, God. And yet you are delighting what you're creating in us, the master craftsman. So Father, I'm just simply saying, God, stir our hearts this morning that we would surrender to the master weaver. 
Create in me, God, no matter what it takes. Create in me. Christ himself, the glory of God. And enthrall me with that, God, that you are doing this as our hope. You are doing this, God. And I just thank you, Father. You are so good. You don't do these things out of malice. You don't do it because you're an angry God. You are so pleased with us in Christ. Just give us that heart that sits at rest, even in those difficult struggles, light and momentary. Thank you, God. Thank you for your glory, the beauty of your majesty. In Jesus' name I pray.